Hello everyone and welcome back. Today we come back with a great episode. I was waiting for publishing this one with Jake Moore uh, because it's really funny and it's really interesting and I hope you really enjoy. So Jake comes from uh, the Cybercrime and Digital Forensic Department from Dorset Police and we explore a little bit of the backstory that Jake can uh, share with us and especially when we're talking about um, murder scene and how somebody can get caught by just googling how do I hide a body and similar uh, if you want stories and interesting stories. So Jake's after that uh, changed a little bit his job and now he's the spokesperson for ESET and um, he's actually an enjoyer and uh, sometimes I hate his Twitter because I always see his fantastic scenes from Dorset of him surfing but aside from his surfing life uh, he's a good friend and is really interesting on on discovering and talking with him a little bit about ransomware a little bit about the virus uh, not not traditional virus but the computer virus this time and um, how the transition happened from police to effectively uh, public service and professional service and uh, what change and uh, how do you find enjoying one or the other and what are the challenge so this is a really interesting episode and Jake is a fantastic person and a fantastic professional so I really hope you enjoy this episode this is Francesco your host please enjoy and stay safe and stay secure welcome to the cybersecurity and cloud podcast where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today we have finally the time and the occasion to have Jack Moore on the shows. I think we, me and Jack have been pinged here and there on Twitter and challenging each other to do this and finally he's here. So please let me introduce Jack Moore. Jack Moore is the spokesperson of ESET and also uh, cybersecurity professional by day and as I said, spokesperson by night. <laughs> Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's <laughs> great. So can you tell a little bit the audience, how do you become a spokesperson and what, what you're up to these days? So yeah, um, my job is to be the voice of the company, um, not in any sales role or anything like that, but to give advice, uh, analysis and commentary on cybersecurity to as far and wide as possible. So. There's usually a cyber story going off in the press every day. So mm -hmm. I like to discuss uh, and advise on anything that can be helpful to those readers. Amazing. And how did you actually get into that? I mean, cybersecurity, how did you start in cybersecurity? Let's put it this way. Well, it starts actually in the police. I was in the police force for 14 years. Wow. And the majority of that time, I was in the high-tech crime unit Mm -hmm. um, which became the Digital Forensics Unit, and then I joined the Cybercrime Team. Um, so for around, for around 10 years, I was in the Digital Forensics Team looking at digital evidence. 
Um, as fascinating as it was, I knew this was definitely the future of crime and it just progressed from there. Then the cybercrime team uh, was funded by the Home Office for each individual force around the country. And I was with them for two years, uh, of which I would go around and speak to my, my the county that I'm in, which is Dorset, and speak to businesses of all sizes and give them security advice. Uh, and that's when I set my sights on ESET, because the UK head office is just down the road in Bournemouth. <laughs> so I went there and I just said, I've got, an, I've got an idea for a job. Um, and they said, perfect timing. I think we've got something that can totally work here. And it's been great ever since. That's that's great, and and I like that approach because you you went to a company with an idea of a job rather than them advertising a job. I think yeah. for, for new starter and and people that are creative and enter they have that entrepreneurship mind, they don't think immediately. Oh well, I'm fitting in this role or this other role, so they don't think sideways or lateral. Yeah, I mean, I I always think aim big. Okay, so. Um, a lot of people think it's kind of funny that I went to the company and said, look, I've got this idea, but um, you might call it luck, but it just all happened to, to work perfectly as well as um, they needed it. I, I saw an opening for them and I thought they would need maybe some PR hits as well as offering that uh, unbiased touch of advice, which companies always need. Um, and again, not going down that sales route. I, th I think it's something that we need to really focus on. Education is absolutely necessary. Uh, for so many people. I, I mean, I meet people all the time that will say, oh, I'm a technophobe. Oh, I don't understand what I'm doing. Um, I just want it to go away and I'll just click a button. And hopefully someone else can deal with it. I think that's the wrong attitude. And so we need to make people um, far less worried about it. And I treat everyone like my mum. Uh, and you know, 10 years ago, I'll give you an idea there, my mum did not know how a computer worked. And now, 10 years on, she is incredible um, and knows so much. And I've done it through baby steps with her. And it's so easy that you can do that with absolutely anyone. So I think that's something definitely to take away. No, I, I love that approach. I love the approach of simple, clean and teaching your mom. Yeah. <laughs> teaching your mom how to do multi-factor and, and password authenticator. I was trying to get that. Uh, I, I have to admit I failed, but I'm not going to give up. <laughs> yeah, don't give up. That's that's definitely a key thing there. But yeah, my mum loves the password manager. It's brilliant. She's always going on telling her friends about how easy it is. So you never know. Um, she can go on and help other people. So it's yeah, great. no, I agree. And and if it comes from the user, it's uh, I think that's that, that you have something in there because if it comes from the user, user to user, it's more, more much more appreciated than if it comes from a cybersecurity person because they see us as okay, they don't want to really talk to us up until we create that, as you said, PR image that I, I really like to to create a, a good PR image for a company of frictionless, of easiness, of easy to approach. Definitely. And it, and it is possible. You don't have to be always thinking about how um, to sell a product. You can be selling advice as well. And advice is, if anything, is far more uh, impactful on those people's lives. And in turn, you could argue that it may turn back into sales further down the line. I mean, that's the whole idea of PR. But if you can go out there with, with being that honest and unbiased uh, awareness advice, then it's definitely going to reap the rewards later. Yeah. And we tend to forget that business, even tech business, is all about people. Absolutely. <laughs> and relationships. So if they feel good about you, if they come to you for advice, they may say, that product has that face next to it. I trust it. Ultimately, Absolutely. that's it. Yeah. For anything cyber, they trust the product, so they need to trust the person that are behind it. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, we're moving into a, a new phase of where there is a face behind a company. 
are far more. I mean, just look at LinkedIn. The people on LinkedIn have more of a presence than the companies on there, I'd say. And, yeah. and that's what we're buying into. I and mean, people want to work with people and they want to trust that person behind that. And, and you can't fake that trust. I think it comes uh, over time and you can see that progress. And I think that's something that is really interesting to, to manifest, but it can only work organically. I think it can only work um, genuinely if it's got that trust behind it. Yeah, but then if we pivot that on the dark side, there are people that are trained to actually build on that and create that level of trust to then scam and, and create that malicious intent, right? True, and th that's a great point. I mean, we've still got phishing emails that are able to very quickly manipulate people just through a series of cleverly put together words that make people act on something that they may not normally. Mm -hmm. um, again, people that are victims of these crimes want to, to see a quick win where maybe the computer does it for them. But I think it comes down to that education again. So teach these people what to be uh, aware of and how to go around the verification of such things. And hopefully we're going to win that war on cybercrime. Finger crossed. But if, if you were to give the very quick advice to people to actually spot uh, if something smells too good, if it's, it's something to, how do they spot, for example, a phishing email or a phishing campaign? Well, it's funny. Yeah, because so, so many of your listeners, uh, you included, will we'll just see a phishing email and it'd be completely obvious. But to so many people, I, I still find that people think that they're genuine. And that can be from the fact that it looks like what they, they imagine it's going to look like. I mean, I always say, if you checked the email address, um, people say, oh no. And then actually the amount of times I've said to people, um, are you actually with that bank that is sending you that email? And they say, oh no, I'm not with Barclays. And I say, well, why would Barclays be emailing you asking you to verify your details? And they go, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. So uh, people get caught up in the moment, uh, just never follow those links even if you think they're genuine go go a different way you go to the true website in your in your favorites um get there that way and don't go trusting links even if you think it is from the genuine site yeah and and we definitely saw uh, an uptake unfortunately during covid of phishing email phishing campaign people trying to scam and fraud and probably even the dismissing so that the SMS phishing has has gone on the rise and we've seen more and more uh, that what's your perspective on that yeah um, I'm always fascinated with the smishing uh, campaigns because they're they're harder to go and verify mm -hmm. uh, a mobile number looks the same as another mobile number whereas an email can look very very different from yeah. the genuine one so um, it, it's straight away what you'd expect to see just a number and then you can go and uh, make it say whatever you want so there are ways of, of faking those words and even faking the numbers so they are looking like they're what you'd expect and therefore you may be more enticed to go and click on those links and also people are associating phishing with emails and mm -hmm. again they're not associating it with text messages so i think we need to get that education across to those people around not believing what you are reading, just like we've been saying in the papers for the past hundred years or whatever. <laughs> it, we, we cannot go believing it all, um, but it, it'll still work because people still do that. So it, it's a big case around um, awareness, which I keep going on about because it's still got to go on. But on top of that, 
to throw in multi-factor authentication. I, I keep saying to people, just in case you ever divulge your password or your password gets breached, have some sort of multi-factor authentication that is an extra safety net should that get out there. Um, of which I then go and say, go, go and get an authenticator app. You know, this is the, the thing that will just hopefully uh, make people think twice. And then in turn, they'll go and think twice about their reusing of their password, which people still do. But hey, it's keeping me in a job. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to keep us in a job for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Because naturally, human beings are trustworthy and we are naturally looking for the we're not looking for something that is off, but we are so desperately looking to a pretext or something that we can trust in the other person. So even if the, the hook, the, the other person gives us a hook so that we can attach ourselves or attach our belief that the other person is trustworthy, we immediately bite. And there's a natural instinct, I think. And I like this. I, I'm really fascinated with the psychology that goes behind it. Um, and Actually, I've, I've been thinking about the psychology that is connected with, with cybersecurity for quite a while. And uh, I recently did some work with Myers-Briggs and the white paper comes out in October, um, a fantastic organization, Myers-Briggs, looking at personality traits. And, and we've tried to connect how personality traits and types are connected with the manipulation um, and being duped into cyber, cyber crimes right the way from uh, phishing emails all the way through. Uh, and it's got some fantastic results. Um, and, and you're right, it comes down to that trust in people. If we can instill, if we can instill that knowledge um, about how we shouldn't be trusting it so often, then it just puts up that first line of defense, which is a barrier of, you know what, I'm going to take a couple of minutes to think about this and not act on the, I think, what's that book around thinking speed? So think fast, think slow. I, oh yeah, I love that book. I, I, I love how that is. And if you relate that into cybersecurity, the, the phishing email that comes in that makes you act quickly, the thinking fast, bam, you just do it and you click on it and then you may not think about it again, but they've got your details and transforming that into the thinking slow where you take a few minutes and, and digest it all and think, you know what? I don't think that's actually genuine. I'm going to keep that away for a moment. And I think, no, it's a very good point on taking a step back, taking a breather and re-looking at the email and say, why is this coming from a dot Russian address? And <laughs> oh, why, why do I have spelling mistake? Oh, yeah, I don't have that bank. <laughs> that's it. But it's taking that step and, and that um, approach. But normally attacker on, on, on phishing emails, they tend to, push a lot of that sense of urgency so that they bypass that filter so our our mm. animal brain kind of engage and says i need to react immediately otherwise i might lose i might lose my life or things like that that's fight or flight uh kick in so it mm. is i am really fascinated by all of this that's why half half of the podcast is social engineering because it's one of my it's one of well, my pet it's peeves. working yeah and and i love it too and and i think there's always going to be that risk around human interaction and cybersecurity. It's never just going to be press this button or buy this software and you're going to be protected. It absolutely needs that human knowledge and concept to go with it. Because we're human. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. we can put as much stack as we want, but as business, as anything is made human by human and trust by trust. And that yeah. email phishing, 
prey on that trust or building that trust and, and building their bridge. Yeah. So back on square one, one, one curiosity that I had is how did you, how did you feel about pivoting from public service, police, all the way back into private? What, what was the challenge? What, how did you, how did you do that roller coaster? Yeah. So, so I, I only knew the police force straight mm -hmm. out of university. I mean, I, I went in straight away after uni and just worked throughout um, and never thought I'd ever leave. I mean, so few people ever leave the police force and go into the private world. They tend to stay there for their whole, whole career and then retire. So um, I'd never really given it any thought, but it was the two years that I spent in the cybercrime team. I spent so much time with other businesses mm -hmm. and I realized that so many businesses of all sizes needed cybersecurity help of which we could give them a, a hell of a lot of support from the police. And, you know, they, obviously being the police, they felt it was trustworthy and unbiased support. We weren't selling mm -hmm. anything. Um, but I then started to see that, that my career may just be at a time that it wasn't so scary to make that leap. Although it was scary, it wasn't as scary as maybe if I'd done it a few years before. So, so two years ago, when I jumped into ESET, it was fantastic. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. And when COVID-19 happened, the one morning we went in and they said, right, everyone go home. You're all going to be working from home from now on. Uh, that afternoon, we were all set up to go. And it was an easy transition. Our home working is safe and secure. Mm -hmm. um, they've got those policies and procedures in place, which is fantastic. I look back at the police force and you know, they are slightly behind on a few things. I'm sure they won't mind me saying that. I used to highlight quite a few problems that, that were around, but things like working from home wasn't such a, an easy thing that we could have done uh, for, for many reasons, but one of those reasons would be money. And so yeah. the police force, unfortunately, isn't funded in the same way um, that you see these private companies. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I needed that extra challenge i needed an extra uh future goal um and i've loved it it's just got better and better over the last couple of years um and the last few months even amongst the pandemic it's been great to be able to work from home and like you've seen i've been able to work from the beach quite a few days so yeah it's been <laughs> pretty everybody well. has been hating you for that but there are there are there are worse of my friend that work from hawaii and ah. you know i had uh, you're not the worst of my friend okay well they win <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually that's great because we were just discussing before kicking off the podcast of this new world, this new way of thinking, working, and maybe this is the new norm. And this has pushed a lot of business actually to rethink digital and rethinking InfoSec and mm. has put a lot of challenge because right now a kid next door to me is, or, or a kid in, in my same house has a compromised laptop and all of a sudden my work laptop is exposed effectively to an attacker or a potential attacker in my mm. same home network. So the shift has dramatically shifted from pure, uh, you know, you're in a corporate environment, you're in the office, you're in a safe environment, mm. and then you go home is a completely, you know, sealed off. So yeah, I mean, and that is a nightmare for the InfoSec teams um, around. And as usual, the tech digital companies are right at the front of this and were aware of that before and 
I imagine many companies would have had some sort of working from home mm -hmm. policy already in place, maybe one or two days a month. Most weren't thinking it would be absolutely every day, but they at least tested it for a couple of days. And those are the companies that can now shift into doing it all the time. But like we were saying just before, it's nice to have the option. Now, I'm, I'm really, as you know, I love the beach, so I'm really into uh, health and well-being because... <laughs> You know, although it's a bit of a joke, but it really does help getting out, see fresh air and enjoying <laughs> the surroundings and getting out, running, cycling, whatever. Um, so to have that option is uh, is massive. But then there are some people that may be living on their own or they're living in a living with their parents or something and they, and they like to get out of their uh -huh. home. So having that option, which we've done at our, our company, uh, we've left the office open for people if they want to go in. And it's great. I went in earlier on in the week and there were seven people out of, uh, I think we've got just under 80 people. So seven people were in there and they chose to be in the office. But it's great to have that complete shift into deciding where you're going to be. And coming back to trust, which is maybe the word of the show, but the managers have got to trust their workforce that they are going to do the job. And, and we did a productivity test in about six weeks into lockdown over the whole world at all our different offices. And we found productivity had remained the same or gone up. And I think that is amazing mm -hmm. that so many people are seeing this as, as an advantage to, to take and make this whole pandemic, uh, let's find some positives out of it. You know, there aren't too many positives, so let's really try and make it. And I think it will never go back, like everyone says, it will never go back to how it was last year. No, because we got we got maybe used to working in this distributor and, and as you said, it gives us option and it makes people happy. And ultimately, if you're happy, you stay in the workplace environment because why mm. change? If you're happy to work with your colleague and maybe the only challenge is, as you said, it's, it's getting together. It's for people that start, maybe it's, it's a little bit challenging because it's difficult to connect with other people or to ask yeah. the question that where you can just literally walk and ask that thing. But we can always we can always make a midway where you have like one day where everybody or most of it is in the office, right? Yeah, and and that's it. But it also opens up the the talent pool as well. It's mm -hmm. not just a, a a local. You know, got to live within twenty or thirty miles of the office. You're now looking at the whole country, even the whole world, to join the team, and that brings in a lot more skills that you may not have seen before. And and I I like that. I think it's turning something on its head and seeing it differently because we're forced into it. You know, I think a lot of people are saying that uh, what really did form the digitalization of your company this year, was it the CEO, <laughs> was it the CTO, or was it COVID-19? <laughs> I, I think it's turning on the other head. It's like COVID-19, CIO, forced by COVID-19, right. or the CTO. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's really cool because if it was the CEO, we'd still be sitting there going, mm, I think we need another consultation phase. But now when you're forced into it overnight, it's crazy how quickly you can drum up some policies and procedures that actually work. Yeah, yeah, no, and the, the downside part is that uh, we maybe have adopted a lot of stuff without a proper risk assessment. Like we use that cloud, we use that environment, we use that device, we use, everybody use the device working from home without properly assessing it and yeah. We have made some risky decisions and there might be some impact out of it, but also some cool learning. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back. 
This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. Yeah, I don't think you get this far without taking a few risks. Yeah. Because, of course, that's the nature of any business and the nature of cyber attacks. It's all to do with those vulnerabilities. But I think we've had those first few months where it was all up in the air. We all didn't really know what was going on, whose home network was safe, whose wasn't. We got through it. At, at the time, I think I predicted that we'd see another WannaCry 2.0, actually, mm. of which luckily I was wrong. Um, and we, we didn't see a, a huge influx at the time, although we've been seeing cyber attacks increase steadily, um, especially taking on the guise of COVID-19 attacks, phishing emails and so on. But as we've got through those first few months, I think we're now at a stage where those companies have tweaked their own security, got the training in place, which I think was absolutely key, mm -hmm. uh, and make it mandatory, but make it interesting. That, that's a, possibly an oxymoron there, but it, it is possible to go and get those staff trained up. And so it sticks in um, and something that's not too boring. <laughs> And on the point of WannaCry, I'd like to pick it up. Probably we haven't seen that uh, as a widespread campaign, but we've seen much more target. And I've been seeing a lot of, if you want, in the ransomware world, I've seen a little bit of a shift on methodology. People, organizations are pushing back on paying the ransom, and that's absolutely fantastic yeah. because we don't finance the attacker. But then the attacker actually disclosed the information. Yeah. That's a new thing that I start seeing. I had some of uh, my ex-client actually saying, well, we haven't paid a ransom. We have the backup, so they were absolutely fine. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, information disclosed. Passport going out in the web and things like that. So what do you do? That, that's still an information disclosure. See, yeah, th this is something I've equally seen uh, a massive increase. And yeah. the impact is huge on what it can have on a business. Uh, scary to think that we were possibly starting to get a grip of ransomware. Yeah. Understanding if the if the backup is correctly managed and can restore quickly and efficiently, then boom, we, we it evolved. Them. It evolved. Yeah. We tried to say it's like a virus. We, we try to we try to create a vaccine. We actually managed to succeed in creating that vaccine, and it changed. Yeah. And now it evolved. So now they're getting in because uh, they've got a business model at the end of the day. They, yeah. they want to make their money. Absolutely. Uh, You're are. right. Yeah. And they've thought, right, let's up the stakes. Let's go and start releasing some data as well. And Yeah, blackmailing. Uh, like yeah, all, especially... all good old blackmail. <laughs> yeah, because it, it works, right? Especially when you've got the ICO down your neck uh, saying, if you get rid of any data by accident, we're going to come and find your ass. You know, suddenly you, you've got it coming from all over. And when you've got minutes to decide on what to do, oh, there's some squeaky bones. And especially in COVID, I, I feel for all my fellow CISO, I've been, yeah. I've been in one position 
And it's a tough one. And especially during this period, I think cybersecurity and IT has been working the most where everybody was like locked in and trying to find a new way of putting their video on TikTok. <laughs> the cybersecurity and the IT industry has been absolutely slammed. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree with you there. You know, I really do feel for so many people um, from the person that maybe clicked on a link who might be getting told off for it right the way through to the CEO and the CISO who's pulling their hair out saying, what on earth do we do? Um, and that's when they can't talk face to face with whoever they want to in the company. Yeah, it's going to have it would have been a challenging time. We need to but, ask ransomware holiday. <laughs> so like, can you give yeah. us like six months of holiday <laughs> like so that we, we, we send all the cyber people on holiday? <laughs> yeah. But you know what? There's one thing that really gets me. And it's, it's not if they've paid off the, the, the attackers, mm -hmm. even though that's horrendous. Uh, I always advise never, never, never pay. But even if they have, or even if they've lost some data, don't try and cover it up. The amount of companies that will try and cover it up, it just makes them look worse. I think if you hold your hands up and say, you know what, we had that inevitable attack. We made some mistakes. We're human again. Uh, and we fixed it now. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if they did the same attack again, oh, fingers crossed, it wouldn't work. And that's going to be far more uh, rewarding Honest. in the future. They won't look so terrible with um, with egg on their face when they try and uh, hide that disclosure from anyone ever finding out. Yeah, and I think um, I think where I saw that really well executed was Sans. Sans had the mass, well had the big yeah. data breach, and they said immediately we bet we're breach. We're doing something about it. We're being public. Yeah, and I take my hat off to them. You know, that didn't affect them. And it shouldn't affect companies these days because it is inevitable. And I come back to that and I, you know, you can't say you're 100% hack proof. I mean, I love it when companies do say Bulletproof, that. enterprise grade. Yeah, I love <laughs> you it. You name it. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think if we just say, look, we're a company at the end of the day, of course we're going to get attacked and we're going to get attacked a thousand times a day. One might slip through the net come on, we're working with the ICO, all of the people affected found out the moment we knew, God, that would be a life changer. And so it would be, it would never be front page news if that were to happen. It might not even make the news. Mm -hmm. I agree. And if you can, maybe some of this story, do you have some particular stories that you can or you want to share? <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, one of my Notice favorites. I said you can or you want to. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites was, um, so I was working in the digital forensics unit. So this must have been around, I don't know, 2013, something like that. And my job was to get laptops, phones, USBs, you name it, get mm -hmm. the data off and look for the evidence of which sometimes I would have no idea what that evidence would be. Sometimes they would say uh, anything you can find from log files to chat logs to search history. I don't really know because it's a murder and we want everything. Sometimes yeah. it'd be quite obvious. Maybe there's a missing person and you're trying to find chat logs to see who they've been chatting with. So, um, so this is one time that I was given a, a laptop from a murder and it, it came to me in a bag uh, and it was covered in blood. It was disgusting. Yeah, wait for it. And 
uh, they, they gave it, it to yeah. me and they said, right, we're pretty sure we've got the guy that did it. He chopped up his victim. Um, we found him oh, in God. the house. It was like uh, a scene out of a disgusting horror movie um, when they went and caught him. Um, and he had the weapon and everything. But as protocol, we need the laptop looked at. Just just do a normal analysis on it. I said, okay, this is disgusting, but you know, it's gonna be gloves on. Yeah, <laughs> got the hard drive out, uh, made an image of the hard drive and um, just started plugging through. So um, I thought, well, the best place to start is to see if it was on at the time of the offense. So looking through the log files, oh, I found it was on. So that's something, if it had been off, then so be it. Again, they told me that they found the guy and he's pretty much admitting it. Mm -hmm. But I thought I'd go and have a look to see if there's anything in the time that it was on that the offense has allegedly occurred. Um, and I found that the suspect had been on Google. Okay, okay. Oh, this is interesting. What was he Googling around the time of murdering someone? Now, I kid you not, I found in his Google history at that time, he had sat down afterwards at his laptop and Googled, how do I get rid of a dead body? <laughs> <laughs> That's internet 101. It's like, how to... <laughs> the funny thing is, right, at the time, I, I joked with my colleagues. We did have a very dark sense of humor, and I apologize for that. But we, I, I guess it comes with the police. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we saw some crazy stuff. And... I remember saying, oh my God, he's, he's actually tried to Google it. And then someone shouted out, well, go on then, Google it. So I did. I then Googled it. And it was fascinating, actually. <laughs> I, went, uh, I don't advise anyone to do I, I don't think it would start ringing any alarm bells in the Met or the FBI. But it, it's quite interesting. I, I think there will be a lot of alarm bells if, <laughs> if, you, if you start to catch all, all the crazy in the world. It's like you need a data center of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found this blog that was, that was quite interesting i got into it there were about 40 different ways of disposing and it had the pros and cons of getting rid of a body <laughs> from getting pigs to eat it to putting it in a bath of acid to how to bury it and if you bury it you want to be putting another dead animal above it so if you've got the dogs that come and sniff it out they'll dig down and only find the deer and think that's what the dogs must have smelled i mean i didn't know about that thank you <laughs> i you think go. it's gonna be useful in any of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was crazy to think that, that it did have these pros and cons, but it, it all made sense. Anyway, he wasn't so clever because he had left uh, evidence in the way of blood all over this apartment, which was clearly sad, but there's always something of interest that would come out of every different murder that we'd investigate. And did you have any stories where the that you can share where the digital forensics was actually key to nail down somebody or um, where it was useful for an investigation, even yes. if you can share like generics, not, not specific. Of course. So yeah, the amount of times that I would be called to court um, because you'd have someone that would be in custody and he would just go, no comment, just every question, no comment, no comment. And so at the time they would say, right, well, we'll get our digital forensic specialists to go and have a complete look through your computer. And they'd say, yeah, no comment. Um, they'd always be advised to, to just let that happen because it, in their eyes, they're thinking if we can't find the evidence, then they might go scot-free. Right. 
towards the end of my time there, I actually got more frustrated because so much of it would be uh, heavily, heavily encrypted and it'd be very, very difficult to go and break that encryption. But especially at the start when encryption wasn't so big and the world of Tor wasn't such a big thing, there would be not just breadcrumbs left on a computer, there would be everything left on a computer. And so the amount of times that I would um, go looking through a computer, my job would be going to look for maybe passworded content or maybe um, do some file, file signature analysis and find that that strange looking word document dot doc isn't actually a dot doc. If my signature analysis might tell me that's a JPEG or an MPEG, maybe it could be something else. Maybe you know, his partner can't open it up, but then he could if he just changed his, the file extension. Little things like that. And security so I security anyone? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I would then go and put a report together and say what I found. Um, a different team would go grading anything that would be indecent, which was great that someone else would look through that, not me. Um, and then I would um, put together what was found in Google history, uh, file names, you name it, um, what they've been torrenting or whatever. Um, and just by then turning up on the day of the court case, you would then go and see their lawyer and you would submit your evidence and they would read it and say, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not going to go into court on this because this is pretty damning. So they would then turn around and say, yeah, my client has decided to go guilty now that the report is there. So I'd always be ready to go to court. And of course, sometimes I would go and I'd get cross-examined. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking, it's harsh being cross-examined by someone when you're thinking, even you know that guy is a complete wrong -un. And you're trying to tell me that I made a spelling mistake on my report. This is just crazy. And they, I think once I was told in court that um, I'd actually done a five page report, but I hadn't, um, but I'd said at the beginning of the report that it was a four page report. I mean, this is the kind of thing that they would try. They're trying to over. discredit you as much as they can in, in, in the face of the jury that says, yeah. well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And hence they <laughs> might've made other mistakes. It, it's, it's, it's classic. It's yeah, yeah it's, it's, you've seen it on the TV. It happens in real life. And you're thinking, how do you, you sleep at night? How do you keep calm in that situation? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do I not punch this guy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had um, some fantastic court training on how to stay calm and understanding those tactics. I hear how a majority vote works. That was amazing. Mm. How they would be working on just, just convincing three people on a jury of 12 that they could be innocent that's all they're working for three that's nuts uh, and we're there trying to get a majority verdict or sometimes the, the full 12 on the jury but no it would be great to go to court with a report and hand it to them and then go yeah yeah we're not going to carry on anymore and you think great justice is done and that guy can hopefully go away for some time and do you miss that you miss that feeling oh yeah and I get asked that quite a lot and I do. Um, and I miss the family feel that the police has mm. as a, as a vibe because you're with these people for years. I mean, for me, 14 years is a long time, just under half of what other people would do. But yeah, it still was a long time. And I loved it. I felt like I was giving back to the community, but one of the things that made me leave particularly the digital forensics unit is because we weren't getting the same hit rate 
um, of court cases that we're used to. And that, I'll come back to it, it's the level of encryption, the level of knowledge and the use of the dark web that would extremely help all of those criminals along the way, even the low-hanging fruit that used to go and Google mm-hmm. that they want to look at indecent images. Suddenly now... How, thinking, how to hide a body. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. Now he'd do the same thing, but he'd go, you know what, I'm just going to jump on tour and do that. Yeah. And then close the, the browser and back, I'm going to struggle to get that back. You know, that's the shift that I saw. And it was frustrating. I think I went to court, I don't know, uh, a couple dozen times, but um, that's in my 10 years that I was in there. But in the last, say, year that I worked there, I don't think I went in my last year, which was frustrating. And, and I felt like I wasn't able to reward the public back to what I was doing anymore. So maybe I should look at doing more preventative work mm-hmm. with the community and give them my knowledge uh, from what I've learned over the last few years and protect them in a different way. No, that's great. And uh, great and not great, because if it, we up the, it means we up the bar from a security perspective, but also we shoot ourselves in the foot because we, we, it's like privacy and security and uh, like police force is always a struggle of yeah. how do you find the right balance? I know. Um, I don't think there is. I don't think there is a fine balance. No, I, don't I think, think it's I've a got an answer to that. No, I don't think I have. No. <laughs> I don't think nobody has. But anyway, Jake, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. But before we close, we have a tradition in the podcast. We need to leave everybody with a warm and fuzzy feeling. So we leave with a positive message on cybersecurity, Jake. Very quick one, short one, <laughs> before we close. One from me. Okay. You make your own luck. That's one of my favorite sayings. That's it? That <laughs> oh, is- very short. I think that, that, that that's the record of the shortest message. <laughs> you wanted it short. <laughs> that's short and sweet i love it i love it uh no absolutely and it's been an absolute pleasure of a conversation <laughs> amazing story so jake absolute pleasure i still hate you for your picture on on the page <laughs> no i'm sorry not sorry <laughs> not sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you everybody for listening this is francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity, and stay safe thank you jake thank you we hope you enjoyed today's episode If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com.